0: Ten decisions shape your life You'll be aware of five above. Seven ways to go through school Either you noticed or left out Seven ways to get ahead Seven reasons to drop out When I said I can see me Just friendship What I want to do tonight is uh, we're doing a series called Story, Finding Your Story and God's Story. And what I actually want to do tonight is, um, is maybe as we've gone through this series, you've thought some, we hope you've thought some about your own story and where you are. and Things that have happened and are happening and things that you hope might happen. But maybe if you're like me, you've often found yourself asking the question as you think about your own story, be it boring or tragic, Maybe you've had this question, you've thought it to yourself, is where in the world is Jesus in my story? What is, where is he? What is he doing? And what I want to do tonight is actually look at a passage. We're going to take a break from Exodus, and we're actually going to look at a passage from John's Gospel tonight. So if you brought a Bible, you can uh, go with me to John chapter 11. And we're looking at, for some of you if you grew up in the church, maybe you know this story. is basically the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But what I love about this story is it's Jesus with his friends. One of the marvels of the gospel is that Jesus considers sinners like you and me his friends. And it's Jesus uh, being incredibly loving in a story with his friends. So if you have a Bible, go to John 11. And I'm going to read, I'm going to skip around. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. And then we're going to skip over. We're going to do verses 32 to 44. So first John 11, 1 to 6. And then... We're going to skip some verses and do 32 to 44. So if you have a Bible read along with me, if not, just listen. Here we go. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now listen to this. It's fascinating. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now skip with me to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, Jesus is on his way to Bethany to see them. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. That's important. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus, just put yourself here for a second. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. In his face, wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this passage tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have loved us so much that you've given it to us. Father, forgive us for the ways that I and my friends have neglected your word. Um, Lord, I pray in this time together tonight that you would help us pay attention. Uh, Lord, you know there are many things in our thoughts, in our thoughts, and in our minds. Uh, both things trivial and things big, and Lord, you know them. We thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. We thank you that the very number of hairs in our heads is numbered, and that you love us well. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a humble heart tonight to, to listen to what you have to say to us from your word, and in particular as we look at you, Lord Jesus, and what you did with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, your friends. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name and for your glory. Amen. So I've been married almost 10 years, and about six years ago, I got a girlfriend. This girlfriend was incredible. This girlfriend did everything I could ask and more. This girlfriend never told me no. This girlfriend was sleek and sexy. This girlfriend had a name, and her name was iPhone. My iPhone literally is. My wife calls my iPhone my mistress uh, because I often pay more attention to it than to her, uh, which is sad but true nonetheless. It was interesting, uh, Trex actually a couple, uh, I guess it was last year, posted this article that I think nailed this, this idea that you and I have this tendency, we struggle to love one another, even our wives, or for, for, for me and for you, just, you know, whoever it is for you. Here's what uh, this guy, Jonathan Franzen, who's one of my favorite authors, he had this uh, this article in the New York Times called, Technology Provides an Alternative Love, Liking is for Cowards uh, coward to Go for What Hurts. And listen to what he says, fascinating. it's fascinating, it's one of the best articles I've read in the last five years, he says this, He says, I may be overstating the case a little bit. Very probably you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds, a.k.a. your parents. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast between the narcissistic, listen to him, between the narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Sebold likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody. She has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters, own the mirror of our self-regard the simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships sooner or later you're going to find yourself in a hideous screaming fight and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all things that shatter your self-image as a fair kind cool attractive in control funny likable person something realer than likability has come out in you And suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly there's a real choice to be made. Not a fake consumer choice between a Blackberry or an iPhone, but a question. And here's the question. Do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? And what I love about this passage is that Jesus gets down in the pit and he loves his friends incredibly well. There are three things I want to look at from this passage that we're asking about this passage tonight that I want you to listen to, and we'll listen, and we'll find out what this love is about that Jesus has for us. But first, I want you to think with me about why he waits, second, why he weeps, and then lastly, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. It's pretty simple tonight. Why he waits. Why does Jesus wait two days? Second, why does he weep? And then lastly, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. So first, think with me for a second. If you were listening to the passage, why Jesus waits. Now, here's what's interesting is that when you look at the relationship between Jesus and Martha and Mary and Lazarus, what you have to understand is that they were friend friends. They weren't just Facebook friends. Like, Jesus deeply loved them. Jesus, Mary had actually massaged Jesus' feet. Jesus had actually eaten Martha's home-cooked meals. Last, Jesus probably, when they had, when he went to see them, he probably slept in Lazarus' bed. Jesus deeply, deeply cared about these people. And yet, in verse 6, it's so weird. It says he loved them. And then it says, if you have a Bible, this is what you circle. He loved them, therefore, he waited two days longer. Like, you would think it would have said, he loved them, therefore, he packed his donkey and, like, booked it to Bethany. But it says he loved them, therefore, he waited. Why? Because he loves them enough to disappoint them. If you're ever going to understand your story, you have to understand that Jesus loves you enough to disappoint you. Jesus loves you enough to tell you no. Jesus loves you enough to crush your dreams. My wife was voted... I said this today to a friend. My wife was voted most likely to marry rich in high school. And she married a pastor. (laughs) Deep, deep irony. (laughs) There's an article by... I don't know if y'all follow John Acuff on uh, on Twitter or if you've seen him. He's the guy that... um, So a couple years ago, stuff White People Like came out. And then John Acuff did stuff Christians Like. He wrote a book. But he had this incredible article, um, and it was called Great Sex, Flat Abs, and Jesus. And basically what he did was he found himself in Walmart. If you've ever been to, like, the book section in Walmart, it's a really weird experience because on the left hand are all these inspirational and Christian books, and on the right hand are all these, like, men's magazines. And so he was noticing, he was looking at the two And he was noticing that a lot of the things on the front cover of the men's magazines were actually on the back cover of Christian books. So he did this list of like 13 things and the whole test was, was this from the front cover of a men's magazine or from the back cover of a Christian book? And so number two was secret to effortless success, men's magazine or Christian book? Uh, Number 11 was living life without limits, front cover of a men's magazine or back cover of a Christian book? It's a fascinating thing. It's really funny. But here's what he says. Because he basically says this is a problem. That you and I actually treat God more like a butler. Like he exists to meet our needs. And then here's what he said. He said, do I ever go to God with a laundry list of better demands? Give me a better marriage. A better ministry. A better life. A better job. A better everything. Do I chase the blessings of God sometimes more than his presence? Do I ever treat God like a really good self-help guru? that is there to meet my needs. Yes, yes I do. But I don't want God to simply be a new vehicle for the things I want. I want God to be what I want. I want him to be enough. I love the way he said that because for the reality for some of us is we treat God like a new vehicle for the things that we want. And the question is is God what we want? Uh, when I was, uh, I've done this for seven years, and so I'm a little more used to the ebbs and flows of campus ministry. But for five of those years, I was doing RUF at Georgia Southern. And sometimes, you guys probably can't relate to this, but um, part of what's hard about this job is sometimes, like, I, like, prepare my heart out for a large group, and then I show up, and then there's, like, three people. This would happen in Georgia Southern, not three, but... Like, you know, we showed up in one of those, it was one of those crushingly low turnouts. And for like a pastor, it's very easy for me to find my worth in how many people come to out for how many people are in the ministry. So I remember it was one of those times where I think like Al City and John Mayer were playing in Atlanta and like half of my students went to that, sadly. That is just sad. There's their loss, honestly. Sorry if you like yeah. either of those. <laughs> But it was one of those just crushingly low turnout. So I went home and I called my friend who did our FFSCAD. And, um, and I remember, I'll never forget what he said to me. We were both lamenting, having, like, I think he had, we had a large group in the same night. He had a low turnout too. But I'll never forget, we were talking and he said, Sammy, he said, I think when I think about this, he's like, I think the reality is that Jesus loves me too much to give me a big, large group right now. And I hated him. <laughs> but I loved him. Because what he was saying is Jesus loves you enough to disappoint you. So here's the question for you. Where does Jesus need to disappoint you? What is it for you? But that's not all Jesus does. So first, why he waits. Here's the reality, though, by the way. Unless the Lord makes you wait, you will never learn to wait on the Lord. Unless he makes you wait, unless he disappoints you, you will never learn for him to be enough. But here's the second thing. It's not all that Jesus does. So the second question is, why does he weep? This is one of the sweetest scenes, I think, in all of scripture. It's one of my favorites. But here's the, the story. So here's Jesus. He shows up three days late. Lazarus is dead. The funeral is over. And if you've ever been to a funeral, surely most of you have. You know what the most awkward part of a funeral is, especially if you know the family, is what in the world do you say? Like I've had in this last year, I've had several friends whose fathers have died. And I'll never forget, one of my friends, uh, we were fraternity brothers here. We were pledge brothers. And his dad unexpectedly died this past fall. And I remember we haven't seen each other in a long time. And I was, went to the visitation because um, I couldn't make the funeral. And as I was at the visitation, I was making my way through the line, And as soon as I got to him, it was one of the most, it was, it was super sad. that he just saw me and he burst into tears and he just hugged me. And we hugged for about five minutes. And that's what's happening with Jesus here. Actually, NT Wright translates because when we say Jesus wept, there's a little bit lost to us. But I love the way NT Wright translates it. That literally, Jesus sees Mary and he bursts into tears. He just starts crying with her. And it's interesting. Why is he crying? Well, it's not because he's been listening to Bonaventure. They're not sentimental tears. It's not because, they're not tears of regret because he can't do anything. It's not like the end of Schindler's List when he's like, oh, one more car could have been. He can do something. He's he's shown himself to be the Lord of all creation. That's part of why Martha and Mary are upset with him. Is they know if he had been there earlier, he could have stopped it. He could have done something. So it's not sentimental tears. It's not tears of regret. Then why is he crying? I think it's actually three reasons he's crying. First, is he's moved to weep, he's moved to tears first by death. Jesus hates death. That means when you're watching the Lion King and we do that whole circle of life, it's a circle. We're like, no, John, you're wrong, my friend. It is not the circle of life. Like, we do not look at death and think, oh, so sweet, let's sing a song about it. Jesus looks at death and he weeps. Death is not a natural part. If you ever read the Bible, you know this. Genesis, death is introduced after the fall. Death is actually one of the consequences of sin, one of the parts of living in a broken and fallen world. It's one of the things that Jesus, when he begins to make all the things new, he's going to undo. There's no more death. Jesus hates death. And literally, it's interesting. If you look at verse 33 and verse 38, that word, it says it twice. He was moved, but our English doesn't get it. Like, basically that word in the Greek was used of like animals. Like, have you ever been around a horse? And have you ever been around a horse when it gets angry and it makes this sound that is, like, terrifying? Like, horses are some of the most terrifying creatures in the world because they're so powerful. But, they, like, this angry, like, name, like, this angry, like, sound, like, deep from its balance. And that's the word it uses about Jesus when he approaches death. That it makes him angry. You ever thought about that? That Jesus looks at death and he gets mad. There are tears of anger. But it's not just he's moved to weep by death. He's also moved to weep because it's not just death. It's the death of one of his best friends. He's moved to tears because one of his best friends has died. You know, it's funny. Like, we say this a lot in RAF, And I hope you get this. Like, have you ever thought that Jesus doesn't just love you, but he likes you? Some of you don't believe that. Like, Jesus doesn't just love you and sort of tolerate you from afar, but Jesus actually likes you enough that the gospel says he actually considers you his friend. And so here he is looking at his friend, Lazarus, and, who's died and he's moved to tears. In other words, if you ever watch Seinfeld, I think sometimes, this is for a long time in my Christian life, what I thought the Lord was like. If you ever watch Seinfeld, do you remember the episode with the Soup Nazi? All right, so the Soup Nazi was the guy who, like, ran this, like, he ran the soup shop. And if you came through the line, like, you had to get your order exactly right, or he would say, no, no soup for you. And so it's one of the episodes where, like, Jerry or somebody gets the order wrong, and he says, no soup for you. And once you're kicked out of a store, you're, like, kicked out for good. And sometimes I think that's what we think the Lord is like. Actually, one of my saddest moments in preaching history was I, I used this illustration one time. And literally, I was walking home afterwards, and I saw a student's notes left behind, and all they, all they wrote was... God is not the soup Nazi. And that was like it. (laughs) And I was like, I failed. I am a failure. But the reality is sometimes we look at the Lord and that's how we think of him. Do you believe that he doesn't just love you but that he likes you? Like for some of you that's what you need. Because some of you think he loves you but he tolerates you from afar. And how sweet would it be if you understood? how different would your prayer life be if you viewed it like a conversation with one of your best friends? I promise you it would change it. So first, he's weeping at death. Second, he's weeping at his friend's death. And then thirdly, it's actually interesting and one of the most interesting things about this passage is he's looking at Lazarus and he's actually thinking about his own death. Have you ever noticed the similarity between Lazarus' death and Jesus' death? Lots of similarities. They're buried in the tomb for three days. Jesus is looking at the death of his friend and he knows what's coming he knows in a few short weeks that he is going to die. And his death is going to be far more painful. Because his death is going to be literal separation from the Father. His death is not just going to be physical death. His death is going to be a spiritual death of sorts. The spiritual death that you and I deserve. The spiritual death of hell. So when we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. We don't literally mean he went into the nethermost regions of hell. We meant he put himself under the full condemnation of the Father. And that is the ultimate, that is the ultimate form of death. And he's looking and he's seeing his own death. And so they're not just, they're they're not sentimental tears. They're not tears of regret. They're tears of anger. They're tears of compassion. And they're tears of sacrifice. It's interesting in this passage, if you look at verse 50, we didn't go all the way. But Caiaphas actually gets it. And he says, it is better, is it not better that one man should die for the people? And that's exactly what Jesus knows he's going to do. That he is the true and better older brother who's going to give his life for you and me, his brothers and sisters. There's a scene in Narnia that I, this is my absolute favorite scene in Narnia, and it's in The Magician's Nephew. And it's a scene where Diggory's mom is dying, and uh, Aslan goes with Diggory to his mom at her deathbed. And I, want you to, I just want to read it for us, um, what happens. And here's what happens. Diggory's talking to Aslan, and his mom is dying, and he says this, he says, but please... Please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure a mother? And Lewis says, Up till then he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws in them. Now in his despair he looked up at his face, and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life that he'd ever seen. For the tawny face of the lion was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother's death than he was himself. I had a counselor recently, we were talking about part of my past, you know, we're talking about stories, and some of you guys know that part of my past was when I was 12, my parents not only got divorced, but my dad ended up leaving our family um, through being addicted to crack cocaine, and so um, a big part of my story was just dealing and wrestling with that and I was in seventh grade, 12 years old, didn't know how to process, obviously a lot of that. And Dad was pretty much gone all the way up until I was out of college. Um, we have a relationship now. I, I love my dad. But that was a big part of my life,' it was a big part of how I even came to a place where I cried out to the Lord. But I was meeting with my counselor, and he said, Sammy, hey, he said, "If you're ever going to grow just as a Christian and as a man and as a human being," he said, part of what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go back we're going to have to go back to 12-year-old Sammy and we're going to have to bend down near him and we're going to have to say, Sammy, dad's not coming home. And as I was, as I was thinking about that, <laughs> the thing that I kept thinking, it's like, the, it's like we don't, you know, Presbyterians, so we don't believe the Lord speaks to us. But it was like the Lord was saying, Sammy, I want to go with you, and I want to weep with you. I just want to weep with you. And the question for you and for me is, where does the Lord want to go back with you and weep? Where does he just want to take you by the hand? Maybe it's a place in childhood. Maybe it's a place a month ago. Maybe it's something that's happening now, but where does the Lord want to weep with you? You know, I, I love the way uh, this guy says it. Sometimes we sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me. But you know what we can say from this passage? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would, wouldst cry with me. Where does he want to weep with you? But that's not all he does. So first, why he waits. Second, why he weeps. And then thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. Last thing I want you to see with me, why he waits. Why does he wake Lazarus from the dead? What's fascinating, Tim Keller points out that most of us go to the grave and then cry, but Jesus totally does it differently. Jesus cries and then goes to the grave. Why? Because he can do something. And in fact, what he's doing is huge. But what I want you to see about what he's doing, because if we put ourselves there, it's a little bit weird for us. Because some of us, you know, we were like, how, does, doesn't science kind of disprove the Bible? And is it really possible for Jesus to raise this dead man? Well, that's a different question for a different time. I mean, I think for us as Christians, we say if God made the world and he made it for himself, surely we should wonder and be, Christians should make the best scientists because we're exploring the wonders of his creation. But we can also say he can enter into his world and do what he wants to do, right? That's the short version. If you have questions about that, I would love to grab coffee and talk. But that's not the point. The point is to think about why he's doing it. So let's assume that this really happened, because I believe it did. But why did he do it? And I think some of you would think, and, and I thought for a long time, he's doing it to sort of show his power. Like, he's doing it to be like, what's up, guys? I'm Jesus. I'm God. Like, that's how when we look at the miracles, that's how most of us see them. We're like, what's up? Check out my power. It's like, Kanye, you know, st- it's hard to be humble when you're stunting under a jumbotron. It's like this sense of, like, look at my power. Worship me. But that's not what he's doing. What Jesus is doing in raising Lazarus from the dead is he's actually giving us a foretaste of what's to come. He's giving us a foretaste of what he's beginning and begun to do. Here's the way I think about it. So you're out at a nice dinner with your parents. For those of you who are 21, you know, maybe you're partaking, but you're with your parents, and they order the wine. This is always the most awkward part of dinner when I'm with my family. Every, every year we go to the beach, and we have this nice dinner, and my mom loves wine. Let's just put that on the table, and so she orders a bottle. And uh, it's always awkward to me, like the whole tasting it, so the waiter pours a little bit, and then you're supposed to, like, swirl it and sniff it. and It's just awkward. It's just a very awkward thing. But it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is doing. he's saying this is, because what that's supposed to be is a foretaste of how good the bottle's going to be. This is a foretaste of how good the new heavens and the new earth are going to be. Because here's the reality. You can mark it, put it, if you have an iPhone, put it in your calendar. That there is a day coming where Jesus is going to stand over my grave and he's going to stand over your grave and he's going to say, Sammy, come out. And he's going to say, Megan, come out. He's going to say, Trex, come out. He's going to say, Mary Clay, come out. He's going to say, Cece, come out. And he's going to say it, and we're going to raise from the dead. It's going to happen. And when it happens, three things we're going to see. And this is going to be amazing. We're going to see three things about what Jesus has begun to do. Here's the first, that Jesus is the one who makes all the bad things come untrue. Jesus is the one who makes all the bad things work for good. He makes all of our bad things work for good. That's what he's doing with Lazarus. He's literally, he says to Mary and Martha, he says, listen, this is super sad, but I'm working this for the glory of God. And I'm actually working this for your good so that you will learn to trust me more. And on that day, because there are places in our lives where we can't see that, y'all. Like, I can't tell you how the Lord is working good through everything that's happened with my dad. And there are places in your life where you're like, I don't know what the Lord is doing. But on that day, we're going to see we're going to see how he's worked all our bad things for good. But second, we're going to see how he's worked that all our good things will last forever. You know, part of what we talk about Summer Conference, the best thing to me about Summer Conference is the friends. For you, it's the best part. You get to ride in a car with your friends for six hours, which sometimes is awesome. Sometimes it's terrible. It's awesome when you're in control of the radio. Or you're not driving and can sleep. For me, I get to be with my friends. I get to be with my campus minister friends. But have you ever thought, like, part of what heaven's going to be so incredible about it is that we're going to get to do that forever with each other. Like, there's no end. Because part of what's sad is, you know, when you go to a week like that or you've had this incredible dinner with your friends is it has to come to an end. But there's a sense in which, I think my mic is dying, but there's a sense in which it never comes to an end. And think about... The, some of the best things that we enjoy here. Yeah, I love the way Brian Habig says it when he's like looking at trees and God's like, oh, you like trees? Well, guess what? In heaven, there are these things called crees. And you're like, mm. No, they're trees. Right? The Lord is making new, all th- he's making all things new. He's not making all new things. Huge distinction. But then, third, we're going to see that all of our best things are yet to come. All our bad things will work for good. All our. Good things will last forever, and all our best things are yet to come. And that's what Jesus is showing us in Lazarus. That, our be- that to be with Jesus, to be in his presence, to look in his face, to hear him say, to hear him that passage in Hebrews where he looks at you and he says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. I'm not ashamed to call you my sister. I'm not ashamed to dance with you. For a lot of you, that's awkward. But the idea that Jesus is not ashamed of you. When I was, I'll close with this. Because what does this have to do with you? Well, here's what it has to do. You and I are so selfish and we're so self-focused that it's almost impossible for us to wait. We want things now. It's almost impossible for us to weep. You know, Scripture says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And what you and I do, what you do when you go home to your roommate... You weep with those who rejoice when they get a new girlfriend or new boyfriend. You're like, yay, let's celebrate. You're like, oh, what's wrong with me? We rejoice with those who weep and we weep with those who rejoice because we're selfish SOBs. I I, I can say that. And it's hard for us to even imagine the new heavens and the new earth. How often do you think about heaven? Uh, My daughter, uh, I get to do a lot of weddings, and uh, I did a wedding, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, and um, and my daughter, it's always a weird thought to me, like, the person who's the first, you know how there are people at weddings who are, like, the first person out on the dance floor, like, that is my daughter, and it's really embarrassing to me, because I, dancing's not my thing, you can probably look at me and guess. So here's my daughter, we're at this wedding, she's the first one out on the dance floor, I love my daughter, by the way, she's seven. She's, like, breaking it down. I mean, like, and she's, like, doing, like, sometimes I watch my daughter dance. It's, like, stripper moves. I'm, like, oh. <laughs> I'm raising a stripper. Great. <laughs> and so she's dancing. She's doing her thing. And, um, and then these uh, older girls come out on the floor. And, like, they're, like, 12, 13. And, like, they really know how to dance. And so, like, they're really breaking it down. And I watch my daughter. And she, like, crumples under the floor. And she's just watching these girls. She's got these, like, her eyes are like daggers. She's just watching these girls. And uh, so we get in the car, and, uh, and on the way home, and so Alyssa and I look at Jane Mack, and we're like, Jane Mack, she's super quiet, and she's angry. And we say, Jane Mack, what, what's wrong? And she goes, those girls. I hate those girls. They're better dancers than me. I hate them. <laughs> we like, we're trying not to laugh because it was a very serious moment. But I looked at my daughter and I thought, that's me. Like, I am so focused on myself that I miss, the jo- I miss the party that Jesus has begun to throw. And so have you. But you know what the miracle is? Is that's why he died for you. Some of you need to know that Jesus died for your bad attitude. And you need to repent. Because guess what? Your friends and I have been talking. We haven't really... But <laughs> your friends and I have been talking And your attitude is a real bummer cheer, cheer up You're much worse than you think And Jesus loves you much more than you know But I, look at my, I looked at my daughter And thought that's me Jesus is inviting me He's, he's asking me to trust him that he, might, that he can disappoint me Because he loves me He's asking me to see how tender his heart is And he wants to weep with me And he's asking me to join him in the work that he's doing of making all things new, including making all people new, including you and me. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who weeps, but you're also the one who causes tears to cease. Lord, we thank you that um, that this is how you are to us, that you consider us your friends and that you love us well. Lord, I pray that as we think about our own stories and even where we are with you, Lord, some of us still have our doubts. And uh, Lord, we need you to, to meet us in our doubts and to help us wrestle with them. And some of us, Lord, we're just, we're lonely. And we really do need you we need your friendship and we need you to surround us with people who can love us well we pray these things for Jesus in your name Amen. into the moment'm like at the edge. I know that no one's gonna turn me around. just one more stand. Let go I oh, went in the middle I, I hear the voices And they're calling for me now I know But nothing's gonna wake me now Cause I'm a slave to the sound